Hi, it's John here. And it's Teresa. You know that old expression, Teresa, music is the soundtrack of your life? I do. Well, I was kind of thinking about that as I was preparing for the show. And as we get older, we forget a lot of things. And well, some of us do anyway, but we always remember songs and what was playing maybe for the first dance at your wedding or in the car radio as we're driving to a vacation spot when cars had radios that families listened to or, or that first record, if you remember what a record was. For me, and I'm going to date myself here, it was Goodbye Yellow Brick Road. EJ at his finest first album that I owned and I still cherish. What was your first music that you bought with your own money? Oh, I don't even remember. But but I do remember my dad loves garage sales. And he came home one day with a box of just old CDs he picked up. And of that, like, I think Smashing Pumpkins is the, the album I remember most. But I don't remember which Smashing Pumpkins. Didn't buy it. <laughs> was, was gifted it. Um, but, you know, when we think about, like, our experience of music, how we consume it, how we purchase it, my generation and those that have come after me have certainly just disrupted the music industry. I don't know if anyone buys CDs anymore. Digital is the default way to consume music. And where we actually do own a digital version of a single or album, you know, iTunes, it's not that different from the old days, John. I mean, old days is a comparative word. But we have, in less than a decade, just given up owning entirely streaming music, essentially renting songs and albums from services like Spotify or Apple Music is now how most people listen to the soundtrack of their lives. But this shift has come at a real cost to artists, John. Yeah, that's right. The days of VJ or Elton John making all their money on record sales are long gone. Streaming services pay a fraction of a penny every time they play your song. By one account, they need to have that song played 250 times before they make a dollar. And that's no way to make a living. Luckily, though, just as technology has disrupted the livelihoods of musicians pretty much everywhere, it's now opening the door to new opportunities, new ways for enterprising artists to capitalize on their creative output, cut out the middleman, and establish a new kind of relationship, a sustainable one, with their fans, with their audiences, with all of us. Maybe, just maybe, it's never been a better time to be both a musician and a music lover. This is Disruptors, an RBC podcast. I'm John Stackhouse. And I'm Trin Teresa Doe. In this episode of Disruptors, we're looking at how the music business is set to be transformed yet again by digital innovation, but this time through new streaming platforms using blockchain technology and new products like NFTs or non-fungible tokens. It's the artists themselves and not the record labels who stand to benefit. Our next guest has a unique perspective on this potentially seismic shift. Rain Maida is the lead vocalist and primary songwriter of the alt-rock band Our Lady Peace, which has sold millions of albums worldwide and won four Juno Awards. He's also chief product officer of Sing, a sharing platform and tech company targeting the music industry and artists like OLP. Rain, welcome to Disruptors. Hey, great to be here. Thank you. 
So Rain, I'm wondering if we can start off with a bit of a description of NFTs and how they're being used by artists and their fans. So Our Lady Peace released its latest album, Spiritual Machines 2, as an NFT this past January before releasing it to the general public a month later. Can you walk us through what an NFT is, why OLP chose to release one? Why did you think consumers would want to buy an NFT of the album? Yeah, I mean, there, there's there's a lot of aspects and components to an NFT that make it interesting, especially for for creators. You mentioned with with Our Lady Peace, so we we gave out or sold 500 limited edition versions of our album prior, probably six seven weeks prior to them hitting the DSPs. So the benefit was that you get a to hear the music early, which I think is I, I never want this to get lost in the technology, but from my perspective and my lens, obviously a music fan, that's what they're looking for is music. But the fact that they got generative artwork, so they got an original piece of artwork and being on the blockchain, that can be verified. It has provenance. And I think that that's, that's what's very interesting about blockchain. The, the whole component of Web3 being able to add utility to this NFT that, that a fan purchased was something that we explored. We, we added demos, uh, stems of the song. So like original studio kind of files that they were able to manipulate themselves afterwards and some physical components as well. The album artwork signed by us and, and a video message. So we tried to kind of try to bridge this gap for, for fans because, uh, you know, I do admit that I had to kind of just help fans understand why this digital asset has value, why it can have lifetime value. Some of the things that are very interesting for a creator is the fact that we built in a royalty into that NFT where in the sense of if a fan were to, to go resell that on an open sea or, or on Sync, which is a market that we launched on, you know, for the first time ever, that creator and me being the artist, we have a 10% royalty built in. So on a resale, we actually make a little bit of money, which is, I think for creators is, is something that we've never had the opportunity to do before. Rain, I wonder if you can give us a sense of how much the economics of music has, has changed just in your career. I believe your band started in 1992, really at the, uh, at the beginning of the digital era. And while much of your music may have the same inspiration, it's extraordinary how the economics have uh, transformed for better and for worse. How has that influenced your work as a creator? Yeah, I, I think yeah, it's a great question, John. I think I'm like the perfect case study because I did come in right at the advent of digital age in music and, and literally have, have lived through the paradigm shift. So it really, it really started for me in terms of why my interest in technology? Like, why do I why do I need to to start understanding this? Probably around the time that Napster started. Technology on the music side has always been progressing, kind of not slowly, but you know, the way you record. We we did we actually recorded our first album on on two track tape, and then moved into digital, uh, different media called Radar, and then into Pro Tools, and 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 kind of the, all the the platforms that you experience now as a creator, which are amazing and. 100% democratize the space and do so much great for for artists and creators. On the technology side, in terms of the economy of music, yes, Sean Fanning created Napster and literally started taking money like out of my pockets. And I kind of sat there saying, wow. So I am a fan of technology in terms of its exponential use on the creative side, but what do I feel about this? Because now people are using BitTorrent and different sites to kind of, I'm not going to say steal music, but start streaming it with the advent of, of you know, digital music streaming and not have to pay for it. So I, I was, I'm not going to say I'm a, I was a fan, but I was a fan of like progress. And I think as an artist and a creative, that's being creative, you know? So I, I, I did have an appreciation for that as opposed to, you know, Metallica who went out and said, hey man, stop stealing our music. It inspired me. And, and I felt like, okay, this is technology just needs to, with, with all technology, 
there's a downside. And maybe this was the first downside for me as a creator, but how do we leverage this? So I, I literally started building products that were in the space of trying to empower the independent creator. And so here we are fast forward and we've gone through the illegal streaming to Apple selling music for 99 cents a song, however arbitrary that was by jobs to create that value. But then that lost out to streaming and subscription models. So it's a really interesting time. And I think what Web3 and blockchain now do is set us up for this next paradigm shift for for musicians and creators. And and I'm doing my damnedest to be at the forefront of that. Yeah, and Web3 or Web3.0, depending on how you like to call it, is really about decentralization. Uh, We we had Web1.0 with the internet, 2.0 with social, and now it is being decentralized through things like blockchain. And we got a really good taste of this when we were all rapidly distributed through the pandemic and forced to live decentralized lives for better and and for worse. And I'm curious, Rain, just looking back over the last two years, hopefully that's not the future that we just went through. But uh, if it gave us a sense of the uh, the techno future of 3.0 and and what that might mean for creators and for art, including music. The path that I'm really focused on is is when you talk about attributes of Web3, the one that's most important to me is portability. So when I talk about portability, I look at my career and the arc of creating communities. Now, if I go back to 92 or when we first started in clubs, you know, throughout America and Canada, we were literally putting an email list at our merch booth. I wanted to connect with our fans. So say, sign up to our whatever newsletter or fan club. And that was literally like total old school. Someone sign up, you know, with a pen and paper at a clipboard at the merch booth. Obviously, it's progressed to where now we build communities on other platforms. And the problem now is that I started with MySpace. I've spent a lot of time and energy building something there. That's no longer. And, and so it's really about keeping up with the Jonas of what's the new hit platform to build on. But the problem is, and this literally just, I was talking to a manager about it on the weekend. It was over at our house in Los Angeles. And he was saying, yeah, isn't it weird? Like we all know there something changed in the algorithm on Instagram back in February. And everyone's kind of growth really slowed down and your reach wasn't as good. And they're trying to move you to reels. And so not saying that, that the tools that Instagram have aren't amazing. But the problem is if, if I get upset and, and I'm feeling like Instagram's misbehaving, I can't just take all those thousands of fans that I've been building over the last five or six years that I've literally been letting into my life. When you talk about the pandemic, John, and yeah, I've been showing them like what I'm eating for breakfast or doing on Instagram live. But the problem is if, if, if I don't like what's happening over there, I can't take that fan base that I've built, that community. It's not portable. They own it. So what I'm hyperly focused on with my partner, Mitch Butler, who is based out of Toronto here, is a platform that we built called Drops with two R's. And that is about creating your communities on a platform that the artist owns for the first time. So that is really kind of the lane I've picked in Web3. And and like I said, I think portability is is the future for artists. I'm really interested in that vein, Rain, about empowering the independent artists and ensuring that they can retain ownership and IP rights. In a recent interview, you mentioned the reason you chose Ethereum specifically is because of smart contracts. And I'm hoping you can tell us more about smart contracts and the potential for blockchain to do things like enable artists to retain IP rights when collaborating with other artists, for example, and royalties they might get from from those sorts of things. When you talk about a smart contract and the Ethereum block, like that digital ledger is incredibly important because that is essentially what that acts like. You know, you have this ledger of, I think what you're hinting at, Teresa, is, is even song splits. So distributing those those monies, I mean, the value of blockchain is amazing, right? Just to give you that in real life example, when, when we sold our 500 copies of 
spiritual machines too as an NFT on the Sing market. It's incredible, right? Everyone got their unique asset, but we got paid immediately. Like if, if someone bought it through their wallet, like all of a sudden, all these gatekeepers, all these intermediaries that were controlling literally my money, I see that money go straight into my MetaMask wallet. From point of purchase, that money is delivered right to me. Anyone that understands the music business, it's usually six to nine months to get money, either from a publisher, a record label, a PRO. So you can take all these different components and start seeing the value. So in terms of how quickly I get paid, it's instant. Brilliant. And just to go back to your your initial question, I'm kind of a believer in Ethereum. You know, obviously it was built here in Canada. So I have a a great affinity for it for for those reasons. But it seems like it, it will be the winner. There are other blocks until we find interoperability between all these different chains, which I don't know is possible or or is something that's, that we want as a solution. Ethereum seems to be the, the, the best bet. Having that portability on the Ethereum chain is something that I know is, it's immutable. I'm, I'm going to have that data and, and the fans that, that we've been building over the last six months forever on that chain. And, and that's how you build a career now if, if you're a new creator in my mind. I want to go old school on you for uh, a minute because portability used to be about the album cover. That's how you used to port your, uh, your your music if you go over to a friend's house to uh, to listen to records. And I've, I've heard you talk on other podcasts about the the lost art of uh, album album art, which uh, I love because in my basement we have a wall of uh, of old albums of like Synchronicity and Breakfast in America, uh, Who albums, um, even kind of weird things like Upstairs at Eric's. And our kids who are in their early 20s now and have phenomenal music tastes kind of look at this and go, what is that? But but they're really intrigued by it because it's 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 not a poster. We, we get into arguments about this. It's an expression of the art that the music uh, uh, tries to project as well. How do you carry that into uh, Web3 and into ideas like NFTs? To, I, I, I know NFTs are great for art, but do it in a way that keeps it integral with, uh, with the music. Yeah, it's a great question. There's a generation that artwork is really like a thumbnail that exists on their smartphone, you know, and, and with that, and I've seen it with me, there's a decline in, in the creative process with that because, because knowing that it's not that important anymore, I've kind of lost, just lost a lot of juice in terms of the, the bandwidth that I give to artwork for an album or even, even music videos anymore. Like, you know, back in the day, Radiohead would make these incredible little films it's definitely lost a lot of that glamour, but I think it's about to come back now because with with the blockchain and NFTs, it allows me as a creator to think digitally. And what that does is, as we did with our artwork, uh, we, have, we have a great artist that, that we partner here in uh, Toronto called Ollie Goldsmith. So he created the artwork for both Spiritual Machines record. And now people have these collectible pieces because they're all very, you know, the highest res possible as a digital asset that you either buy or reward it on the different platforms that we use. You could absolutely print these things up and they look beautiful or they just, they're great to share around at a bar when you're sitting comparing NFTs on your phone. But the ability to think digitally now uh, has has me really excited. And so artwork has become not a new medium, but it's it's reinvigorating that, that medium of album covers, music videos, pieces of content that now people can own and trade on Ethereum. Coming up after the break, more of our conversation with Rain Maida. So stay right there. I'm Sasha Braganza 
lead on RBCX Music, a platform that uses music to support and inspire youth. One of our key pillars on RBCX Music is support for emerging Canadian artists. Through programs like First Up, we look to provide artists with the resources required to chase their dreams. It really is such an exciting time to be an emerging artist as we're starting to see an important evolution in the learning and making of music. RBCX Music will be partnering with Sounds Unite on a global mobile music education ecosystem coming soon. This mobile offering will be a game changer for how artists create, collaborate, and distribute their music. We're so excited to expand RBCX Music's support of emerging artists through this venture. Follow RBCX Music on Instagram for exciting updates related to Sounds Unite. Welcome back. On today's episode, we're talking with Rain Maida, lead singer of Our Lady Peace, about the opportunities and challenges posed by new technologies in the music industry. I'm very curious about how emerging artists are going to fare in this new world. I think it's very easy for one to be able to sell an NFT from an established band like Our Lady Peace. But for some of the artists on the Sing Marketplace, I've never heard of many of them. I wouldn't necessarily be compelled to purchase an NFT, what's the potential for these emerging artists who don't have a substantial fan base, who aren't using a record label or a giant like Spotify to help them build that base in order to get a foothold and to to build themselves? That's a great question. I I like to use some, some like real world examples of this because I, again, like getting into the the weeds of like what an NFT is having these, you know, crypto wallets so, so you can participate. A, on drops, we've kind of removed all those barriers. So if you're a new artist on drops and you're at a show and all these people are going to be warded, say a PO app or, or some sort of token or something, or even a piece of merch, it could be physical. You don't need to worry about any of that stuff. So I think that's a key. And that goes back to like this, this kind of like not jumping full into Web3 when we call ourselves Web 2.5. To your point on Sing, what I think is really interesting in that is if you look at platforms like Web2 platforms like Patreon. So there are a lot of young artists that make pretty good money by selling subscriptions to their content and them, and them as creators. The key to that is it's, it's direct to fan, right? Bandcamp is another example I like to use, which is, again, another kind of direct to fan merch house. And if you paid attention during COVID, it was incredible. They had what they call Bandcamp Fridays, where the fans knew that 100% of the proceeds, so if you bought a vinyl album or if you bought a piece of merch from that artist on Bandcamp, 100% of the pro receipts went directly to the artists. Those Fridays over the pandemic were massive. Fans are absolutely willing to still support and buy directly from the artists if they know that money's going direct to them. We've had that kind of taken away from us in a way because we, we've all kind of adopted subscription models and DSPs and haven't had to have that same engagement. But I think the passion is there. Maybe not for everyone, but for a core set of of fans that can help you sustain a career or even build a career, I think there is that want to support the artist. So as soon as the adoption happens to where, you know, like I said, I'm saying where we start to realize, hey, this is going direct to artists, get out of the weeds of what an NFT is and the speculative nature of it, realize that in its simplicity, it's just this direct relationship with the artist that you can have that actually instills some lifetime value. I think once we get there in the messaging, things start to change. 
We're also seeing lots of new platforms. That's the, the, the beauty of human creativity and commerce at play. Uh, platforms disrupt and replace each other. Or you probably see a bit through your own son, Rowan, who's becoming a musician in his own right and uh, developing a good following on TikTok. I'm curious, as you watch yet another generation disrupt uh, previous generations through newer platforms like TikTok, in what direction you think that might take music and the business of music? Yeah, I mean, I look at it very simply where I, I've seen all aspects of this business. So when I think about TikTok, uh, it's funny, we were actually having this discussion with, with my son Rowan the other day in the studio because we had a pretty high profile manager and they were saying, hey, Rowan, like, are you, all, are, you, are, you, are you willing to really go for it on TikTok? And his answer was no. I think it, I think it cheapens my music. I don't want to put it up there. I don't want someone dancing to my song. And so the conversation really started for me. I was like, it's interesting. If, I, if someone would have told me back when I was starting, if there was a free platform out there where I can market myself, do whatever I want on a phone where the, the meeting was, ex, was accepting of like basically just hand, you know, holding your, your phone up with your own hand, that would have been incredible because I, we were spending like literally hundreds of thousand dollars on videos using that medium to try to get our music out to people. Now you can do it for virtually nothing. So why would you ever say no to that? I have to go back to the next stage, especially for someone like my son who was still independent, hasn't signed a record deal. If you can leverage that platform to build an audience, but then find a way to where you can own that audience as well, because you 100% do not own that audience on TikTok. Right? And like I said, there is no portability. Then I think we hit this really great inception point where music and technology kind of sways back to where the artist has the power again and not these intermediaries and gatekeepers that have controlled, you know, art for so long. What does the music industry look like if blockchain technology, what you're trying to do and what others are trying to do takes off? Do record labels suddenly cease to exist? Do they just become glorified, maybe marketing materials or a shared services provider for artists? Like what, is, what does that future look like? Yeah, I mean, I think you have to look at it from our perspective. As much as we love to create, the ability to market ourselves takes away from being a creator. Like I, I, I love artists that come into my studio in LA and just want to write a song or record a song and aren't worried about being on, on, on TikTok all day or, or doing a live on Instagram. They're really just focused on being artists. And I think what, what all these platforms and the power of them, which is really great, it does take away from you being an artist in terms of, hey, I, am I a songwriter or do I spend too many hours of the day on, on these social platforms trying to build up a following? It's almost like a necessary evil at this point. I think the labels will, will continue to exist, obviously. But like you said, like a shared services feels a little bit more natural and a better fit. And the artist clawing back that power in terms of, hey, you know what? I need to fundraise to, to go into a studio to record an album. Can I fractionalize my song on a blockchain? Can I use a, a site like Royal where I can go sell 50% of the song before I even make it or an album? And that's the way I'm, I'm funding myself. That's really interesting. So fractionalization is interesting. What Singh is trying to do in terms of distribution. Can I, can I get this, this album or this EP or this song out to individuals and my fans before I release it to DSPs? Can I take a little bit of that power back where the people that really want it and want to support me and will pay for it and find lifetime value in that asset are willing to do that? That's really interesting. And then with drops for, for me, um, you know, working on this project for the last few years, owning our communities. That's another component that I think as it starts to catch fire and we get enough use cases um, over the course of the summer, some of the artists that we're working with realizing that, oh my gosh, 
like to give, just to give you an example with drops, we did a small, well, Pete did seven shows right before Christmas, like Boston, New York, all of the Eastern seaboard of the US. We probably onboarded four or 5,000 new Our Lady Peace fans. If I were to tell you how many fans I have in our database that we can connect directly to via email from my last 20 years of touring, I mean, I'm embarrassed to tell you it's probably 12,000. Half of them probably don't even, those emails are, are dead. So that's just, that's, that's a great example of, hey, it's, it's really empowering and it's time to, to take back our communities and be able to speak directly. I think I remember joining those audience groups literally with a pen and paper right. in clubs, writing down my email uh, with my old Hotmail uh, account. I, you, you can delete that if it was Hotmail or <laughs> You have permission to right. uh, to, and, to delete. Trust me, any anyone that's on the OLB fan club or email list, that's you know Earthlink. They're they're probably going <laughs> to. Rain, this is this has been an extraordinary conversation, and as, as we move towards close, I, I wonder if I can just get you to step back to look at your career as a musician through these incredible changes in business models and in technologies, and share some thoughts on what has endured in your music. And also what's changed and may continue to change because of technology. Yeah, I, I think what's, what, what's most profound for me is the challenges that the music industry in, in, in particular has faced as we've really gone through these technological changes that have truly disrupted music, you know, and how it's distributed, how you make it. I think it goes back to that, that component of our inner creativity. And even as an artist myself who considers myself a creative, that's how we make a living, being creative, writing songs, playing, playing these songs live. It's really forced me to even massage and use that creative muscle even more, right? Because I've had to adapt. And I think that's part of creativity is being able to adapt. And this, is, this has been something that I've, I, I can tell you, first off, I didn't embrace that early on. Like when I first started in the music business, much more kind of set in my ways and kind of old school, but the technology changes are what have helped me like really trigger that creative muscle again. And probably in ways that I, you know, just sticking to simply being a songwriter, I wouldn't have experienced. So I, I think my creativity expanded because of technology and all the changes that that affected music, which I, I mean, ultimately I'm grateful for. And to sit here today with you guys, really hopeful for the next generation of creators in terms of being to own and, and control their work in, in ways that I never was able to. That's such a beautiful sentiment, Rain. Thank you so much for, for joining us today on Disruptors. Absolute pleasure. I'm honored to be here. Thank you so much. That conversation has me wanting to dig out my old records and some of the CDs in my basement. And it makes me think about not only how much music has changed in our lifetimes, but also how much it hasn't changed. The technologies that my parents listen to music on is a universe away from the technologies that my kids listen to music on. But there's also so many similarities in the messages, in the ideas, in the spirit of music. And I think Rain really captured that, that we always should be embracing new technologies and not try to chase them away just because it disrupts things or even makes it a little uncomfortable, both for producer and consumer in the disruption. But we always have to find ways to sustain the artistry of music, to ensure that the creators have a viable way to continue to create 
And all of us have a role to play in that and to pay into that. Technology kind of helps us with that. Yeah, exactly. And I think how you can build that or how artists can build that is by developing those relationships with fans, right? Like Rain talked about that, how Drop, the platform, creates new experiences for fans to get more collectibles, more merch. And, you know, I think about how as a fan and as a spectator going to concerts or watching sporting events, it's no longer this one-sided relationship where I'm sitting there, I'm, I'm watching whatever's happening in front of me, but what can I do that allows me to be part of this experience that allows me to feel like I am an artist myself, inspired by the artists in front of me. So I think the future of this industry is so exciting and I'm I'm really keen to see how it'll emerge and develop. Well, that's all for now. Thanks to our guest, Rain Maida. Next week, join us for the latest tech and innovation buzz with our 10-minute take series. Until then, I'm John Stackhouse. And I'm Teresa Doe. This is Disruptors, an RBC podcast. Talk to you soon. 